This is a quick disclaimer. Although the wise investor is trying to educate people on personal finance, what we talk about on the show is not actually financial advice for your personal and unique situation. Before trying to do anything with your money, always consult a professional. Hey, this is Anthony. And I'm Sal. And you're listening to the Wise Investor Podcast, where we help Canadians become more financially literate one post at a time. This is what they did not teach you in school. Alrighty. I'm ready to go. Alright. Alright. Let's, let's do rock this. and roll. I'll feel baby. How do I look? Didn't answer me. <laughs> he usually says I look beautiful. Thanks, bro. Now I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right, we're good? Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to What They Did Not Teach You in School. Today we're at the Soho Innovation Lab in Toronto, and we're absolutely honored to have two special guests on the show today, Pierre Santh and Emma. Emma's a realtor. How long you been doing real real estate for? Coming up on five years. Five years, so uh, fairly knowledgeable. And Pierre Santh, you've been kind of uh, crunching numbers as an accountant through the long grind. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. I think it's been coming up on nine years now. Nine years, very sweet. Um, so we're going to be talking today about real estate investing, particularly for millennials. We're going to touch upon a couple things like Airbnb rentals, investing in a different country in real estate. Um, because most millennials nowadays, when they think about investing in real estate, they think Toronto $700,000 condo or a Richmond Hill Vaughn $1 million, $1.2 million house. But there's actually more options out there for people. And we're going to be diving deep today in order to shed some insight into that. But before we get started, love to take a minute to uh, speak about our sponsors. Um, today, our sponsor is, as usual, King Street Media. They are the ones that do all of our production. Mark Simone behind the camera today. Big ups to him. KSM, yep. If you need anything, any help with your websites, online marketing, paid advertisements, business development, changing your company for the future, you know where to find them at King Street Media, pretty much everywhere online. So enough of that. Let's turn it over to our two guests today. Oh, big shout out to Stefano, by the way. Hey, this, yo. Is, this is his second episode, and he's a man of few words, but... When he does speak, they're powerful. Happy to be here. Thank, thank you, <laughs> Stephanie. Super powerful. All right, yeah. so let's turn it over to our guest today. Let's start with Emma. Uh, you and I met... At my brokerage. Uh, yeah, a year ago, I would say. <laughs> yeah, probably close there, too. I was doing I think. a financial uh, literacy seminar there on taxes. It was super entertaining. I actually really enjoyed it. Most people did not. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's great to know. It's tough to make uh, taxes interesting. It's something that I've been trying to do since the start of this podcast. Um, maybe I'll crack it one day and become an international celebrity. Maybe I'll just help one person at a time like Emma. So I think you've been uh, moving the needle forward. That's for sure. I try every day to get a little bit better. <laughs> All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What got you into real estate? You've been doing it for five years. That's pretty impressive. Most realtors go out of business by now. So yes. you must be doing something right. Uh, I hope I am. Yeah. Um, so what made you get into real estate in the beginning? Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. I was uh, I moved to Toronto because I was actually DJing. And I'm from uh, London, Ontario originally. So wow. um, I don't know <laughs> if that's like the armpit of Ontario, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I've never, I don't really go to London that much, yeah. but my dad had a store in London that he owned for like 10 years. So I would go visit him. Yeah, and no, honestly, uh, London's actually, it's a great... Western. Yeah, yeah, Richmond Row. Yeah. Um, but no, honestly, London's a great uh, a great town. But yeah... There isn't much opportunity for DJs in London, Ontario. So um, I can imagine what kind of DJ were you? Like I was doing no, dance, no, like tech house music. and yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. sweet. We started with deep house, well, and then it gets kind of a little sketchier as you continue to go down the rabbit hole. You know what I mean? Like the later the night gets, the more yeah, deep house yeah. gets. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of you just progress into liking weirder stuff as you continue to to go. But I think that's what many industries so okay cool so then what made you want to get into real estate then that's kind so, of uh, yeah so i was working a, a crazy job i was working at enterprise rent a car actually and mm -hmm. they were working us to the bone and uh so i was working there however many hours a day and then trying to dj at night and i was like uh, you know i had some family members that were sort of in the real estate industry mortgage broker and stuff okay. like that and i thought 
well, if I can open up my time and try to make the same amount of money that I'm making at my current job, maybe it opens up some more time for me to be able to produce more or, you know, to play more shows and not have to get up at like six o'clock in the morning after just playing at like two thirty to four thirty or whatever it is. And I was like, real estate seems like a great idea. A lot of people I feel start that way where they're like, well, it's a good way for me to work kind of part time and uh, make some side cash. Yeah. We'll kind of get into that, whether or not that actually works. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So how'd that go for you moving to the big city? Kind of. So um, I don't DJ at all anymore. Um, and but to be honest, it I think it's a, you know blessing in disguise because real estate's definitely been my calling and I've always sort of had like this entrepreneurial bone in my body mm -hmm. and um yeah I think it's it was the best choice I could have ever made so I'm really happy with it so was there one person you said like some family connections or whatever was there one person that kind of inspired you to do that um I think so so my aunt has always had decent success as a mortgage broker and I always kind of um you know, was fond of the lifestyle that she lived. Like she had time to spend with her son or go to hockey games or whatever she needed to do to, um, to play her role as a mom. She was able to do that. And, um, I, I have always wanted that kind of flexibility in life. And it's still something that I do want, you know, as I continue to sort of develop my relationship and I want to have kids and stuff like that. I think Sweet. this is a good industry to be able to provide that to you. I agree. That's very true. Okay. Uh, Pure Sand, let's hit you up, my brother. Yes, sir. I actually met you through Emma. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're He's welcome. a gentleman and a scholar. I think you guys are both great guys. <laughs> and um, he came suited up today in the in the dark blue like me. Yeah. I, I see you got the memo this morning. Yes, sir. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what? So you're an accountant, yes, CPA. Sir. Uh, you became a CPA after it kind of got amalgamated, all three? Or uh, no, before. So I, I am a CPA, CA. I got it. The next, I think eight years or seven years until they get rid of it completely so they let all the cas keep that high level yeah uh, for 10 years so uh, people's eagles are a little better for 10 <laughs> years and right like i said now i think there's like seven years left before they take that off but cool what, yeah. made, what made you want to do that where'd you so, grow up in the city uh so for me growing up initially i actually grew up in the hood in jane and finch okay and then, uh, okay. around when i was 13 14 is when i moved out to vaughn mm -hmm. so also vaughn boy you know have a lot of italian friends the whole represent the whole shebang yeah yeah <laughs> so it's a funny story how i became an accountant actually so you know growing up i was always good with numbers like you know math was my favorite subject just because mm -hmm. that's what i was doing well at it's not like I'd go to class super excited to be doing math or anything like that. So when it came time to pick a career and, um, you know, what I wanted to do to go into university and specialize in that, my parents were always pushing me to go ahead and get a degree and yeah, like follow you, that traditional You never path. wanted to use your uh, skill of numbers to save the world with like physics, yeah. engineering, um, or science? Exactly. That. No? <laughs> what made you want to just get out there and be a filthy capitalist? Yeah, so... <laughs> Hear this. Um, we're, I'm in my grade 11 accounting class, right? It's yeah. going pretty well. You know, the the num it's, it's very numbers oriented. I'm mm -hmm. getting the hang of this stuff pretty quickly. So I thought, okay, it's pretty interesting. Then the at the time before now it's CPA Ontario, they used to have the Institute of Chartered of Accountants of Ontario, mm -hmm. the ICAO. These guys came into classrooms all across Ontario. In grade 11. Grade 11 and 12. What? And they would just pitch you with the most... I, I like to use the word propaganda, but, you know, they'd give you, like, the craziest marketing pitch on why you should be and a chartered accountant. And what was it? What were the main Man, talking they'd points? they'd give you a book. So they'd get, put the slideshow up there and it'd be like, CFO of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, <laughs> Ian Clark. At the time, I think he's doing something else now. Boom. And then they'd show his office, which then shows the Raptors floor. Be a CA. This could be you. <laughs> you next, got sold. Yeah. <laughs> next guy, Jay Lim, director at BMW. It's like him in a suit with his arms crossed. And then it shows his phone. It's like, I've driven every single BMW. If I haven't had it as my company car, I've at least rode it. Like different figures like this who happen to be chartered accountants who are doing some baller ass shit. Yeah. And I'm like, man, this is this is what is I want to do. Legal or right. like <laughs> yeah, kids aren't even of age it's like hey that's what i'm saying right you want this, this. Kid? it was so funny so they would show you this and then one of the things at the time they had the ca they had the cga and the cma right and then every time you ask them what's the difference they would they wouldn't really go into detail they'd be like oh the cas are the only ones who are allowed to do public accounting but here look there's the bmw guy and cfo <laughs> of uh you know maple leaf sports and entertainment etc so yeah. anyways that really made me uh you know i'm like oh this is cool these guys are ballers they're making good cash this is this is what i want to 
do and they would give you this one statistic i remember like ask every chartered accountant okay. from that time period if they remember the statistic i'll tell you nine out of ten of them will it would be like the average ca and um c if you're a ca and a cfa uh, with more than five years experience, your average salary is $380,000 a year. Uh-huh. And in grade, you know, in grade That's 11. That's why every CPA gets their CFA. That's what it feels like. At yeah, least. exactly. Right. And at the time, you know, when you're a high school kid, you don't realize that that average includes, you know, Mr. CEO of some Fortune 500 company. Making, making like two mil. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right? Making Which the average really way skewed, man. Yeah. yeah so you yeah, outliers. That, Long story short, that's what initially convinced me to go down that path. Then when I okay. went into my first year of university is when I started learning what public accounting is and, you know, actually the art of auditing and all that fun stuff. And then, you know, I quickly realized a year after I graduated is that, you know, being a chartered accountant and studying accounting, you learn a lot about money, mm-hmm. not how to make money. <laughs> right. Interesting. So that was a big turning point for me. And that's when I started looking at ways to make money and real estate was one of the the avenues that really stood out to me. Fuck, Pearsanth, are you like a professional podcaster? I know. He's like relaying. Damn, that was like a sweet monologue or something. Like you brought it right back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he's setting it right back up for my next question. That's amazing. Okay, before we get into that though, Mm -hmm. um, so for the people out there, most people think accountants are all the same, you know? Oh, my uh, my dad's an accountant. He does my taxes, but does he work in audit? Does he work? What does he actually do? So if you can... The simplest way for our audience to understand what's the difference between accountants because not all accountants are the same yeah for sure i think you know i don't know if this is the best parallel to draw but think of it the way the way doctors work right you have mr foot specialist who can show you all kinds of stuff about orthopedics Mm -hmm. and you know the way your feet are structured and how that's causing pain in your body and then you have the surgeon and you have the family doctor like they're all doctors, but they all specialize in different things, right? right? So right. same thing with accountants by nature in training, similar to the doctors, you're kind of given a little bit of everything when you're going through medical school. Same thing with us. We get a little bit of tax. We get a little bit of finance, a lot of audit if you're going down the CA route before. And, um, you know, you have a little bit in everything, but you don't have depth in, in a specific uh, field. So okay. once you actually start working in there, like if you go into taxation, even within their taxation, you have personal tax and corporate tax. You know, people develop their specializations and get really good at that. In audit, you get good at, um, you know, public companies versus private companies. Financing, in fine, you can go down the finance route and get good at like forecasting or building models and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways you can go. So. To, to answer your question there, you know, different accountants specialize in different things. And that's why you need to be aligned with an accountant that has ex- a experience handling the similar type of business or mm-hmm. needs that you have and has a specialization in what you're looking for. And how did you, do you have a specialization? Yeah. So we actually specialize in uh, taxation for real estate investors, mm-hmm. as well as more of the financial consulting side for businesses and kind of being like part-time CFO services. And what like made that. you want to specialize in that instead of like going down a bay in Wellington and like working for some M&A firm or something? Yeah. So initially to, to give some more background on my story, yeah. when I had graduated school, uh, well, I was in a co-op program. So I started at PricewaterhouseCoopers as a co-op student okay and i was working in tax for a little bit actually while i was there for my co-op terms and i had switched to audit which is the public company audits and private company audits when i had went full-time so working there you know after i got over the whole you know propaganda phase of you know what we were lied to in terms of being a chartered <laughs> accountant i then embraced it and kind of you know found comfort in the things i did enjoy about being an accountant and the big thing that i really enjoyed was I quickly learned that accounting is like the language of business. Like if you can understand the accounting of a business, Mm -hmm. that's its foundation. And then from there, you can kind of pick up more um, insights on like the operations and the other aspects of the business, blend it all together and have a really good understanding of it. That's an interesting perspective. And uh, so Emma, yeah, do you specialize in anything? Tell us a little bit about your practice, how it's evolved over the last five years. Did it, was it general and did it get more specific as the years went on. Yeah, to- totally. So I think um, when you first sort of start in real estate, you're just looking for any at bat that you can get to get some business, right? So when I first started before I was even at Zucasa, um, I focused primarily on leases because that was just the, the clientele base that I felt comfortable servicing at that point. Like I didn't feel that I could service people who were purchasing because I kind of felt like a little bit of a fraud because I didn't own a property at that point in time. And my Fair. mentality was if I can't figure out how to buy the product that I want to sell, how the hell am I ever going to sell this product? Right. Mm-hmm. So there was this sort of discrepancy. 
So I decided like I need to do whatever I can to go through the motions and to go through this process to give myself the confidence to be able to sell this product. And for me, the most attainable product at that point in time was a first time buyer sort of entry level condo. And so when I started at Zucasa, I literally remember my first year and I did a deal in Bowmanville and a deal in Oakville in the same day. And it took me all day <laughs> to get out there. Cause I was living downtown, went out to Bowmanville, showed this property, put in an offer on the way nice. and then went out to Oakville and put in another property, uh, another offer. And they were for like, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the low threes. And now I look back, I'm like, I can't believe I did that, but that got me my, <laughs> that got me my start and that got right. the ball rolling. Right. And so what I did was, um, at the end of the first year, I went to the CEO of Zucasa and I, I took all of the deals that I had done. And I said, who were my favorite clients and what were my easiest, not easiest sales, but where did the, you know, the tr- where was the shortest transaction and where did I find myself most comfortable? And that was in the condo market. And no one wanted to work in the condo market at my company because the purchase prices were smaller. Right. And maybe, I just, maybe not worth their time. But. Yeah. And I just thought about it and I was like, well, um, you know, people say they're going to live in their condos for five years on average, but the stats show that people have been moving within two to three years. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm just setting myself up for another two deals in two to three years from now and mm-hmm. still learning in a market that nobody else wants to tackle. And this was, you know, four years ago. I love that. So Great. that's sort of how I started specializing in condos. And then as I continued to sort of develop myself and wanted to invest, now I'm working with more of the investors because very few agents know how to deal with investors. Mm -hmm. And I always struggled with landing investor clients because I, I wasn't an investor and it's not a part of that network. I suppose it's tough to break into. Well, it's not even necessarily the network. It's like if your clients have more knowledge than you on Mm -hmm. certain items, how are you providing any value? And I feel like that's a lot of the realtor industry. It's like your clients shouldn't have more knowledge than you. I just don't, believe that that should be true as a professional in an industry you need to be striving to always be one step ahead of the curve and learning something new even if your clients are super savvy and intelligent investors like don't get me wrong i have those people and there's things that they know that i don't know but there's also things that i know that they don't know so we're sort of at a like even keel Mm -hmm. it's not like i'm just driving them around opening the door and praying that they're going to buy something like i need to be able to crunch the numbers that are going to work for them and know you know know how to analyze a deal appropriately. So now I'm sort of transitioning into that. Okay, sweet. Uh, amazing. I, I couldn't agree more because like, uh, but most people do start general and then niche as they go. Yeah, do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just kind of have to, you just, you don't know what you don't know when you first start and you sort of just have to test the waters. And it was kind of the same way with me when I even started investing in real estate. I'm like, I just need to figure out a way to invest in real estate. Like, how's this going to work? And now you start to figure out the strategies that might work for you as an investor and your risk profile and your tolerance and your appetite for certain things, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And as you dive into it, you realize there's a ton of different strategies. So many. And, you know, figuring out which one works for you and is best with your risk appetite and all things of that that's, nature. That's something that you've both taught me. But I do want to just kind of uh, talk about, before we dive into real estate tips and of, for investing, I want to talk about building a financial advisory team around you and where the realtor fits in, where the accountant fits in, where the financial planner fits in and where the mortgage broker fits in. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of like to get your opinion on that. Some tips that are, that are, that you would give people out there about maybe some people along the way that you would use to buying a real estate property. Yeah. You want to go first? Yeah, for sure. So I would say, uh, you know, Emma, you could speak more to this, uh, this fact, but definitely you need a strong realtor on the team. You know, someone who, and especially if you're an investor, someone who is an investor themselves, preferably is able to run the numbers, is familiar with a few different strategies and, uh, you know, they can help really show you in the right direction of different types of properties that will fit your portfolio and your risk appetite. I think it's really important to have a strong lawyer and a strong accountant, especially if you're an investor who's looking to grow a portfolio Mm -hmm. and really scale it up. One thing that we find works really well for a lot of our clients is if you get onboarded as one of our clients, we have you onboarded with our real estate lawyer and we're always talking and chatting together. That's really important. It's extremely important, especially with the bigger portfolios where now you're going into more complex corporate structuring and you have a three-tier corporate structure going on. and, And, you know, there's different ways to, 
uh, structure your real estate portfolio from a tax perspective. And a lot of the legal side on the corporation and moving things around, the lawyer is the one handling. And then us, the accountants, we're reviewing it and helping them set the right structure up and having them execute it. So there's a lot of back and it forth is, between. It really the- is a team uh, effort on that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people cut short, uh, cut things short because they want to save costs or they think they can do it themselves. Yep. And even worse is when the realtor is like kind of pushing you to like close a deal to just like make the money, which a lot of realtors do not saying you do, but, and then the financial planner has alternative motivations because he's so he or she's so selfish about just making money and keeping it in like your fund or whatever. And then the accountant is so busy and he's off doing his own thing, kind of pushing things off and they're all working in silos. Worst, worst case. I also think that there's something to be said that like good people know good people and Mm -hmm. you if, if you want to be a real estate investor and you have this sort of sour taste in your mouth, like oftentimes the mortgage broker or the realtors, it, when you're first starting, the first sort of contact um, that you have in getting started, right? And it's if you, if you can't trust the person that's helping to guide you, you're never going to trust their network. You shouldn't be working with someone that you feel is just out to get commission, right? Like I make it very clear to my clients. Like I even had some first-time buyers that... Um, we're going to put in an offer on something last night and they've been looking for like ever. Okay. And what they're looking for is something basic, but I had to have a conversation with them last night and they're like, we feel like we need to buy something because we feel like we're wasting your time. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you're not buying a house for me. At the end of the day, I'm very transparent in saying, I don't need you to buy anything with me today, but I want you to buy everything that you ever buy and sell with me. That's my goal. That's right? what I was just about to say that mentality will uh, make you succeed in the mm-hmm. long term. Totally. But a lot of uh, professionals out there are in it for the short term gains, right? right? Yeah. If a lot of people ask me, well, what makes a good realtor or a good accountant or a good financial planner in, or anyone, right? And it, it is, do you trust them? Like, yeah. And do they have your best interest in mind? Do they want to make a quick buck? And if you trust the person that you work with, you'll, you'll be more open to utilizing their network, right? And as my career has progressed, I've seen a lot of mortgage brokers come and go. I've had a horrible accountant, which is why I got in contact with PV. And um, I just think that when people have, when people are a couple steps ahead of you, they may have already gone through the hurdles that you're about to go through. So if you really trust the broker or the agent that you're working with, they've probably gone through a couple of people in their team and they've narrowed it down to truly the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so those referrals do go a long way. You don't have to use them, but like you should at least kind of consider them. Yeah. Like nothing wrong with meeting somebody. For sure. That's something I wanted to mention about you, Pierceanth, is that it a young tax accountant is like so hard to find. Do you find that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Everyone in tax accounting is like 50, 60 years old, like mm-hmm. old white man kind of a thing, you know? Like, what's, <laughs> yeah. what's, what's up with that? Does no one, the, no one young want to be a tax accountant? I think a lot of the a lot of the young professionals are still in that phase where, you know, they're still working at a PwC or a KPMG and, mm-hmm. you know, putting their time in there or moving on to a different accounting role in, in corporation. I don't see a lot of the younger generation really going out and starting their own practices as of yet, but you know, maybe something that's getting more popular. It depends. People go the entrepreneurial path at different stages and things like that. Tax specifically, I don't know what it is, why why there's a lot of just, there hasn't been a huge inflow of young people going into it. But uh, yeah, that's been my experience. And so not a bad thing for you. Yeah, for sure. It's not a bad thing for me at all. Uh, But the one thing I've, I've found, and actually something that we can chat about later is, you know, with that, with that kind of client base, accounting in a sense is very i like to use the word dinosaur age like you know typically you meet your accountants always face to face you mm-hmm. you open your books people are very reluctant to go the remote path and be very remote with the practice and all right send me your documents i can do this all remotely boom here we go we get on a call finalize everything gets executed so maybe that's something we can de- dive dive deeper into it's actually one of the questions i have teed up here and we'll, mm-hmm. we will touch upon that but i do want to ask how technology changed the way that uh, both of you do your job Technology, I think, has made things a lot easier for me. I also think that um, the company that I work for is actually a tech company first before mm-hmm. um, an actual brokerage. So it's just been something that's been intertwined with my business for so long. Um, but I, I also think that technology for real estate, there's this this is like this gray cloud of like, oh my gosh, is you know, is technology going to wipe out the realtor or whatever it is. And it's my, my opinion is 
it's probably going to wipe out a lot of realtors. But I, I also think that when it comes to financial planning or accounting, like these are big decisions that people need to make. And they like the human aspect of having their go-to person mm-hmm. just because things are more convenient. Doesn't mean that people don't want a human interaction, but it means that the people that they're interacting with better damn well be good. Yeah. Right? Margins may get cut because of technology yeah. um, mm-hmm. systems and processes may get automated. But yeah. at the end of the day, I do believe that there will still be humans using those tools and there'll be like yeah. a synergy of technology and human yeah. um, rather than like the exemption of uh, humans from. Totally. Uh, I mean, our big thing was kill uh, a lot of people, though. Yeah. Uh, our, well, our big thing was sold it. prices, right? Because so many agents were like, why are you guys releasing sold prices and all this kind of stuff? And mm. I said, if the only value you can add as a realtor is that you have sold prices. Figure it out. Like figure out <laughs> some mean, other value by that sold prices. So sold prices were never available until I think it was the end of 2018 or something. Really? Right. Like they, they so just passed the rule saying that like they can be posted publicly. Wow. Okay. And, and it was like a huge thing in the industry where people were like, why is this information being released? Like I'm paying these fees to be able to have access to this data. And that's the value that I'm adding to my clients. And I'm like, if you can only add value by hidden information, then you're really not that great at your job. If that's mm-hmm. the only value that you can provide, like you need to look at at <laughs> developing your skills maybe a little bit better, right? True, true. Um, so I think that that was actually a really good step in the right direction. An educated client, in my opinion, is the best client to have because they've already gone through so much of the process that you don't need to teach them. So if they can have their own sold prices, like let them do that research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Like I've had experiences with uh, like some horrible realtors where you know, their only values are going to pull comparables of the property from MLS and just mm-hmm. give it to you and be like, oh, this was the highest one. So maybe we should use this price. Hey, more a than that. And then, you know, I'm here oh, reading yeah. this and I'm like, dude, this thing has like three extra washrooms. Like it's a much bigger house, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So that's where some of the controversy came from. Got it. Totally. We could go on and on about this, but because you guys are such wealths of knowledge when it comes to real estate, I want to dive right into it because sure. um, we got like 20 more minutes here and I'd love yeah. to really spend the majority of the time talking about this. A lot of our uh, listeners heavy into real estate. Um, so the first thing I'd like to talk about is why do you think there's such a real estate bias towards uh, Canadians, but particularly people in the GTA? Yeah. So why do you think there's that bias? Yeah, I think just, you know, if we you were, think it's universal or just Canadians? I would say it is universal <laughs> for a large part. You know, being a landlord has always been a very old profession and and there's kind of an appeal to it from for being someone who owns properties and is utilizing that to generate wealth. I think mm-hmm. in general, you know, I think out of the top five streams to become wealthy, real estate has always been one of the biggest ones. So that general, uh, I guess, awareness of, you know, a lot of successful people are constantly in real estate and that's how they've built their empires. That kind of pushes people to go towards real estate. I also think personally, it's one of the safer ways to invest versus, you know, dabbling with the stock market and things like that. For a beginner, at least, like, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't know too much about stocks, I think for me personally, at least understanding real estate in the and learning it was an easier process than, you know, doing financial models and things like that to value this stock price. And this is what the discounted cash flows are and mm-hmm. blah, 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 yeah. and make an informed decision rather than the guy who's like, oh, the iPhone 12 is coming out. Let me buy Apple and then make some money on it. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So. OK. And how about you, Mo? Like what? Obviously, you're a realtor, so you're yeah. a little biased, but like, well, here's my time, thing what's though. Your philosophy on so that. So, I agree in the, the education piece, especially for me. I'm more educated on real estate. I understand it. And for me, it's a safer bet because I know it in and out, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think that there's been this like sexiness to Toronto because the numbers have been so great over the last couple of years that everyone's like, let's just dump our money in Toronto. Yeah. It's going up, it right? And, up. but with that being said, um, that's not always the right decision. Like, I have my opinions on pre-construction and people buying pre-construction. I'm not necessarily fully against it, but I think it's a a speculative play Mm -hmm. versus having other fundamentals that you can count on in investing in real estate, such as cash flow or um, principal pay down with your mortgage and things like that. So I think that, you know, just dumping your money and like praying that it goes up in the Toronto real estate market has been something that's panned out very well for people over the last six, 10 years, we'll call it, right? Um, and I think that that's why people are so biased because they're like, oh, well, it's worked well over the last 10 years. And look it at the gains work. that people- It must right? work for the next 10 years. Yeah, yeah. so I think that's probably why. Um, it's also like, you know, you own a property, mm-hmm. you can feel it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. for sure. It's tangible, yeah. whereas the other stuff, 
you know, there's a lot of intangible assets that people don't get the same sense of ownership. Yeah. Mm. I, I think that like there's many, many revenues to generate wealth for me personally. It's just, I know how to analyze a deal and it's like, I can see that my probability of failure is probably a lot less, even though the numbers might be greater because I understand this. Whereas if I was just to put money in the stock market, like I, I don't know it that well. Like just, just to throw my two cents in there and for the viewers out there, what we usually recommend for people that are like the average day person, like you have different buckets of, uh, of, of diversifying, money, right? diversifying it out. Right. So, um, you don't want to keep all your money in cash because then you're not making anything yeah. and you're getting eaten away by inflation. But you don't want to keep all of your money in real estate either sure. because it's not e liquid. I was just supposed to say it's highly e liquid, yeah. Yeah. meaning yeah. if you need access to that money, you can't get it. So right. what we usually say, it's a three bucket strategy, short term reserves, uh, a good amount of cash that you keep, let's say six months worth of expenses just in case. Um, you have your long-term investments that are like shoot it out of the park, capital appreciation, revenue driving uh, assets such as real estate or, you know, tech stocks or a growth portfolio. And I would never recommend to 9.9 .9 out of 10 people should not invest their own stocks. They just use um, a mutual fund or an yeah. ETF yeah. low cost uh, yeah, portfolio totally. where you don't have to decide what the fundamentals are yeah. or if Apple's going to make a good decision or not like you yeah. would on an individual real yeah. estate purchase. Yeah. Just be like, okay, I'm going to invest diversified in like an 80% stock, 20% bond portfolio. That's going to yeah. grow at like five to 6% per year. And that falls in that middle ground where if you ever need the money that you can, you you, can your short-term reserve runs out yeah. and you need to pull money from somewhere, you don't have a home equity line of credit or something. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You can pull from that medium term and diversifying it out. I, I fully sure. agree with that for like, you know, the average investor mm -hmm. or the average Joe mm -hmm. that, just wants to dump all their money in real estate. It's not a good idea. It actually just is not a good idea. Yeah, Even as a realtor who makes a living off selling properties, there's some people I'm like, you shouldn't be buying a house. Like you just shouldn't because you don't understand what you're buying into. Right. And, um, the risk associated with it. And there, there is higher risk associated with it. Whereas if you're buying something that's diversified in, uh, ETF, at least you can look at the historical data on that and say, okay, somebody else is actually kind of managing this. Right. And I'm paying fees on it, but I, you know, I can sort of calculate my return and I don't have to necessarily do much yeah. other than, you know, allocate my funds there. Let's come back to fees a little bit later on too, maybe if we have time. So um, what I'd like to jump into is an article here. Yeah. Um, so Bloomberg came out with an article a couple months ago uh, and essentially it was rating the likelihood of a bubble to occur in major cities around the world. Um, and the number one, do you remember what the number one was? Munich, I think. Munich, thank yeah. you. Right? You read the article. I did good. read the article. Number two article was Toronto. Um, the number two on the list was Toronto. Yes. Now they took into different accounts of interest rates, of people's uh, income or assets to loan ratio, that kind of stuff. What yeah. about the amount of building that's going on? Does that add to it? They probably did the amount of uh, vacant um, properties that they're ex they're expecting over the next five years. Different things. Bloomberg's are pretty, Bloomberg there's, is pretty reputable. So I'd love to pick your brains about what factors you believe is causing this bubble in Toronto mm -hmm. and should investors look out for uh, look out for before deciding to make a purchase in Toronto. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the big things that's contributing is a lot of the foreign investment coming in. We saw this a lot in 2016, especially where you had a lot of buyers coming from Hong Kong and China <clears throat> right. specifically with really deep pockets and they're going in just bidding out the window, like hundred grand over asking price, 50 grand over asking price, et cetera, and really setting those higher prices. Then once you see those higher prices, the next round of sellers are seeing, okay, that's what this is going for. Right, because they're, they're all that's the newest comps. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the buyers are like, okay, shoot, this is just going to keep going up. I need to get in here and lock in something at the prices while it's low before it skyrockets out mm -hmm. of the realm of possibility. So then they start bidding over 50 oh grand, my 60 gosh, grand. This is very and following right here. Exactly. Yeah. Starting to compete. And that's what's the, that's what kind of kicked off that bubble initially. Now, now continuing a lot of immigration is coming in you know we're getting a lot of tech workers and things like that from uh, overall canada's growth perspective and a lot and toronto being one of the major cities in in uh in canada and one of the most popular destinations i feel like a lot of that traffic is coming in here and then mm -hmm. affecting the real estate uh the real estate there and you know some people are moving in i remember i was talking to some guy who was just moving in from israel i think maybe was this your client emma you were telling me about 
Israel? Yeah. I don't believe Okay, that. so maybe it was one of somebody else. Well, I wasn't sorry, I wasn't talking to him directly, but I had heard a story from a friend where mm-hmm. this guy was moving from Israel, tech guy, uh coming in here, 250 grand salary, and he sees a 700 square foot condo for 900,000 and he's like thank the lord this is dirt cheap <laughs> Steal of a deal, because yeah. in tel aviv he has to pay like you know 1.3 million so some of these higher bracket uh workers who are coming in there's this real this real estate's relatively still cheap right, for them because like yeah. if you look at new york or like hong kong or mm-hmm. california miami like london it's getting up to like 3000 bucks a square foot and toronto yeah. it's still relatively low but yeah. comparable to like the average income, income or like right. mm-hmm. yeah. the market in general. Right. I don't know those actual numbers, but yeah. my thoughts are though on this, uh, I think that there's a, a market mentality that this is like foreign investors are driving up the prices. That's it's what like, a lot of people say. So mm-hmm. the thing Part is the though, reason. so, so was the- that the reason prior to the government intervening and, and creating the foreign buyers tax? It, it probably partially was, but the thing is, have we seen a, a little bit of a slowdown since that that has been implemented? Yes. Has the market crashed or tanked? No. So I think that it's like a few things that are sort of coupled together. Obviously, low interest rates and people being like, they have FOMO and they're scared. Like, I need to buy something in the next two years. I need to buy it now because mm-hmm. what if rates go up? I want to get the 2.79, right? So there's the FOMO of missing out on these rates. Mm-hmm. There's the... Uh, like Treb just released their most recent stats and throughout Treb, the actual supply of inventory went down 9.6% year over year, right? Mm. So we're still having this mass amount of not even necessarily like international immigration, people still coming from other areas in Canada because we have such a massive tech sector and stuff like that now. So it's, we have extremely low supply for the demand. Uh, Rates are super low um, people can still qualify to buy these entry level first time home buyer type condos, right? So there's there's a you know a plethora of factors that coupled together put us in the situation that we're in. So what's people to do? Because you can't time the market. A friend of mine in 2009 sold his Richmond Hill house yeah. for eight hundred thousand dollars because he knew he thought he was going to time the market. Right. Property's worth like one point eight now. He oh, is man. fucking kicking himself Stuff in the ass, in yeah. the ass right now. Yeah, but yeah. Th- and then there's other people on the looking, other side now too, he's right? To get back in, yeah. He's and like, "Fuck it, I'm getting back in." Oh. So what yeah. people are to do is to stop purchasing on speculation and and mm-hmm. saying, I, "It's guaranteed that my house is going to go up." It's not fucking guaranteed. Like it's just not. But if you're gonna buy a house and you're gonna live and intend on being a property owner for the next twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you can make the payments. That's what people are to do. Make sure that what you're buying, you can actually pay for. That's could not agree more because it <laughs> yeah. doesn't literally matter, it doesn't matter what the valuations are over a 10, 20 year period of time. You'll be perfectly fine. Yeah, it's for the people that are like, I'm gonna buy this pre construction and then I can't even close it. So yeah. I might, yeah. so I might uh, assignment sale or just like like close that on is it super risky it. to me. Yeah. And it might play out in your favor, but you might be left with nothing at the end of the day. Um, but I also think for investors, like people are like, Oh, should I time the market? Like wait for the, wait for the market to crash and then buy something. It's like, if you find a deal that in today's market is cash flow positive, And if, you know, rents were to go down 10% and the market was to go down 10%, you would still be good to hold that property through whatever period of time it is. Like, that's a good deal. You should buy it today. Mm-hmm. But if you're buying something that is cash flow negative, because you think, oh, it's a good deal and it's going to increase in value. That's a speculative play in my what opinion. What do you mean by cash flow positive and cash flow negative? So it's bringing in like uh, for the property's rent versus it's the associated cost with it. You're actually making cash in And does that pocket. happen? That's anymore? rare these days though. I was just saying, no, it does happen. Yeah. It, it, first, it depends on the market. So I kind of see real estate as being on this like spectrum, okay? And it's if you want to buy in a super shitty neighborhood, you'll typically get a pretty a solid cash flowing property, but it's not going to be a passive investment. You're going to be dealing with, you know, Tenants tenant headaches for trouble. sure, yeah. but you're going to be able to buy a property that provides you cash at the end of the month. And some of those properties are, do well. Like my one in London is like a thousand bucks a month, mm-hmm. right? It's but it's covering n- everything. It, it's making a thousand dollars a month after oh, it covers oh, shit, everything, right? Yeah. So, so 
we're all like, oh my God, it's amazing. But like, I'm dealing with cockroaches right now. So who wants to deal with freaking cockroaches? Yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was like, cause the manager that I had put in place was like lying about it. So it's like, okay, you buy a shitty house in a shitty neighborhood and you make money or you buy something like, you know, a Liberty village condo or what? Yeah. Whatever it happens to be. Like I, I think about our parents' generation, the older investors. Oh, okay. We'll call them investors. They're really not investors. They're people that have extra cash that can buy one property that mm-hmm. think they're investors. Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Those people want to buy something where it's in a triple a neighborhood with triple a tenants and they want no problems. They want right. no call. You're not going to get cash flow because you're buying in a premium location, but you know, people say location, location, location. So it's where do you fit on this spectrum and what area or, or city in Southwestern Ontario are you comfortable buying? in? if you want to buy a dump in London, Ontario, I can find you a cash flow positive property right now that you'd be fine renting through a recession. Hmm. But if you want to pay $1.5 million in Vaughn for a single family house, you're just not going to make money off that hmm. every month. Or at least not at the beginning. No, I, I just mean from like a monthly carrying cost perspective, right? right. right? Can yeah. you make money on it? Yeah, but it's still, you're waiting for the market to or help you you're waiting you for your mortgage to get paid down. Paid down, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, makes sense. Uh, let's talk about two different types of uh, real estate buyers right now. So we have two pretty much that fall into our audience. One is the first time home buyer, millennial buyer. Uh, and the second is the, you know, maybe they have their first property, they're the real estate investor that you would call them, or they're just looking to buy their second and get get that investor title on their okay. on their name card, you know? Yep. So let's talk about the millennials first. What are some tips that you would want to give or some logistical things that you should be looking out for when making your first purchase and and where is a great question too because most people they can't afford toronto maybe Mm. highway 7 and vaughn and like around the subway station there but Mm. most people my friends and clients are moving out to bradford even bradford is really expensive now they're moving Mm -hmm. out to milton burlington ajax pickering right so Mm. talk to me about location and some tips that you would give to a millennial client um, my thoughts are like, why are you buying this house first and foremost? Probably because of pressure. But do you value lifestyle? Because I think the thing with millennials, with us, mm. like for me, when I bought my condo, I'm like, I don't care about how much space I have. I care about being able to go to the bars and being downtown and going to restaurants. Yeah. And that's actually what I care about most in my life right now. We're so, on the same page. So I'm totally down mm. to not buy the house in Bradford because like, I don't need the extra three bedrooms for like a makeshift gym or some shit. You know what Mm -hmm, I mean? mm -hmm. So I wanted the lifestyle, but I think that if people are just being pressured to buy a house, to own a house, you have to figure out like, what do you really want? Like, do you want the hour commute? And do you want the house with the white picket fence? Cause if you do want that, then buy it. They want to mow their lawns and shovel snow. But If you just want to own a house, but you want to live downtown and you can't afford to do it, then maybe you should just consider buying an investment property first and riding that out for the next five years, then you'll have the equity to trade up to what you want. So I actually do talk about that, right? Like, why do you need to live where you buy your property? Yeah, that's that's what I was just gonna say too. Like, there's always been this mindset that you have to buy where you live. Like, you could go pick up a good cash flowing property somewhere and even have the cash flow from that offset your rent for your place downtown. And now your living costs end up, you know, when you add both of those, Net, uh, net, yeah, yeah, when you net those two together, your situation ends up being roughly the same. Yeah, but if or, you're not, or not better, there. it's not better depending on how good the cash flow is. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, so someone that's looking, they first would want to decide whether they want to live in the place that they buy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would be the tax benefits of that? Because a lot of people talk about, oh, the capital gains exemption. You have to live mm-hmm. in the property for one year. Can you talk to us about that, Pearson? Yeah, so that that's though that is the case. Typically, if you are purchasing a property and it's your principal residence and you're living there as your principal residence, when you do eventually sell that property, any gain you incur on that property will be exempt from capital gains taxes. Now, let's say you're in a situation where you buy a property and it was your principal residence and then you go ahead and turn that into a rental property or an Airbnb. So you would be subject to the capital gains tax, but just for the proportion that the property was an investment property slash a rental property. So if you owned a property for nine years, you lived in it eight out of the nine years and it was just one year that you rented it out, you know, one divided by nine times the gain is Is 50% of that is going to get put in. What if it grew later on? more what if it grew in the first couple of years or later on years more yeah so it, it it's still going to be right? disproportionate uh, yeah. i see interesting yeah. 
And why don't you just quickly explain uh, in your words what uh, a capital gain is by using an example in a property? Yeah. So a capital gain is essentially a gain you make from when the value of a property increases versus the cost that you purchased it for. For example, if I were to go ahead and purchase a condo for 500000 and three years down the road, that property, I sell it for 800000 I just made a, co- a capital gain of $300,000. So for tax purposes, I'm going to be taxed on 50 percent of that 300,000 which would be 150 grand and if I'm holding the property now, personally just, that would get just added to, into my income. Yeah, just to add that in there. You don't actually have to pay taxes. You don't have to pay 150k of taxes. Yeah, you yeah. have to claim that 150k as That if is you were totally the market's yeah. perception on that into too. The, in, as you're making it as income yep. from a job. Exactly. So then it's So that gets added in. So let's say, you know, in the same scenario I make 50 grand a yeah. year. Uh, from my employment income. So then now on my tax return, my total income is going to be 200,000 and I'm going to get taxed appropriately with the marginal tax bracket system. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that real quick. Sorry to go off. Here yeah, yeah, no so worries. many people go, well, I just made 200,000 government's taking a hundred. Can you debunk that myth for me? Yeah. So the way the Canadian tax system works for personal taxes, it's a marginal bracket system. There's a, so for example, again, I don't have the bracket numbers off the top of, course, of my head, but the roughly. first bracket is like zero to 45 grand that gets taxed at 15 percent. the next bracket will be 48 grand to i think like 75 grand and that's whether taxed or not at whether 20, or not you know? make 200 grand or 50 grand mm-hmm. your first 40 grand gets taxed yeah, at the same 15 percent yeah. exactly right. okay. so that's how the marginal bracket system works okay and you know it gets a little more uh interesting when you start throwing corporations in there and if you have any questions around if you, if you have any questions you can dm me or search up my brother pierre santh over here he'll yes. help you through it <laughs> yes, sir. all right so uh emma give us like two or three tips that you'd give for a millennial buyer the kind of like uh experience that you would take them through in deciding on where to buy and how to buy um one how much capital do you have okay two what's your borrowing power um, Most people go shopping before pre-approval. Yeah, it's a horrible mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. You're going to torture yourself if yeah. you do that. Um, I, I see people do it all the time. They're like, oh, I can absolutely afford $750,000 condo because the internet told me. I'm like, did your mortgage broker tell you though? Because <laughs> do you have a car payment or do you have this or do you have yeah, that? And they're like, yeah, I have all those things. I'm like, yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't buy that. Uh, but it looks good on the internet. So I would say, yeah, figure out you know what your financial situation is first. And then work backwards as to what your goal is, because if in five years you want a freehold property or you want to live in a detached house in Toronto, but you can't afford to buy, uh, you know, a condo right now, how do we put you on the path to be able to get you there? And that might be buying a cash flow positive property in another neighborhood or another city in southwestern Ontario and working on different strategies to force appreciation of that property to give you the capital that you need to actually get what you want in Toronto. Okay. Um, when I talk to people about buying, it's usually that thing like, uh, what's your price range? Mm-hmm. And then uh, are you comfortable to live in that? If not, let's rent you somewhere, turn it into an investment property, talk mm-hmm. to Pierre Sant about the taxes on that. Yeah. Uh, and then it's a, it's a gradual thing, right? You can't just buy your million dollar property at the beginning unless you're getting a loan from the bank of mom and dad. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's definitely something um, but I wanted to switch gears here to investors because, uh, we have about 15, 10 more minutes left. Nice. Um, and I'd like to talk about, yeah, we got 10 minutes left. So, um, keep me honest on that. I'll be taking a look at your time there, Stefano, but, um, let's talk about what, where are some places that you can invest? You guys have talked about the different ways that you can kind of like structure a real estate investment. What do people look for with that investor mentality? Um, and some people are looking for cash flowing positive properties. Some people are looking for capital appreciation. Um, and some people that fit into that cash flowing uh, property aspect are looking for Airbnb arbitrage. And I'd like sure. for you to talk to a little bit about that as well. So let's start with like investor mindset. What are people looking for when investing in a property? Most people want the best return possible. Yeah. and no headaches that's what everybody wants okay right? no can you actually is that, does that exist eight. does that exist uh Depends not really no in i La mean La Land, maybe if if you're like extremely fortunate with airbnb and you um you know vet your your guests um pretty highly you can mitigate a lot of those risks mm-hmm. but at the end of the day you have random people staying in your house and it's not one person that you vetted it's you know, one person every couple of days typically. So there's always going to be like 
room for error, margin for risk there. Um, but the sort of benefit with short-term rentals is that they don't fall under the landlord and tenant board rules. Hmm. So you're not bound to keeping these tenants. They don't have tenant rights. They're hotel guests at the end of the day. So anything under 28 days is considered mm-hmm. um, short-term rental and is not bound to those rules. So as an investor, if you're making a higher cash flow and you're not bound to, you know, this person doesn't pay you for six months. Like it's super hard as a landlord to get your tenants out. Like everything is skewed pretty heavily in favor of um, the tenants, which is fine because there's a lot of landlords out there that are, are poor too. So it's, you need to know what you're doing. Um, but I think, uh, you know, Airbnb arbitrage, there's good opportunity for cash flow. Can but you it's, define that for me? Airbnb arbitrage? Yes. You so read that online? <laughs> I think there's... So there's Everyone's <laughs> making so much money in Airbnb. Why? Well, there's two kind of ways that people do it, right? So one, if you don't have very much capital to actually purchase a property and you want to just get into Airbnb and, and be sort of on the real estate ladder or be a host... Um, you could do something like a re-rental strategy where you find someone that will let you rent their property and, and host it on Airbnb and make it make a profit off of that by leasing their property. There's from risk to that, of course, and you need to find the person to let you do that. But yeah, yeah so, so there are definitely there. people out there because there are some landlords that say, hey, look, you know, if my rent was to be 2500 what are you going to get for Airbnb? You're like, okay, maybe you're going to gross 4000 bucks a month. And they say, okay, you give me... 3000 instead of 2500 and I will assume the risk mm. and let you do that because now my property is looking even better for me, mm. right? But mm. I don't want to do the Airbnb thing right, myself. Right, right, right. So there's definitely sales ways to get people to want to allow you to do this re-rental strategy. Mm-hmm. But the risk that you have as a re-rental strategy is one, you better know your numbers. Two, if you don't book the place up, you're still committed to paying that mm-hmm. rent. Three, you got to buy furniture for this entire place. And it's got to look nice all the time. You got to get professional photos. Like there's, there's, there are some risks associated. Like you probably need somewhere in the ballpark, uh, you know, five to 15 grand to actually get started because you're first and last month's rent. You got to furnish the place. You got to get internet. Like there's, there's a, it's literally a business. Like you're starting a business. And from, from a tax perspective, perspective, when you're reporting that income, it's literally, you report it as a business. So, you know, you have your business, you have your revenues coming in, you have your various expenses. Mm -hmm. If you're in the red that month, you're in the red that month. Right. So Mm, you manage it actively. And then how does it work for one, if you buy a place and then rent it out and how does it work on a tax perspective as well? So, um, obviously in most, it's more expensive capital. Why would someone want to rent it out? Like with a normal, uh, renter versus yeah. the Airbnb strategy risk tolerance. Yeah. So, so I, I think here's the thing, right? When you're buying any sort of investment property, you need to have a couple exit strategies. Like you need to have plan a B or C the risk that you have when you're just renting a property and re-renting it out. Like you only have one plan, hmm. right? Like if you don't rent it, like you're kind of screwed. Hmm. Um, and, and, or you spent all this money on furniture, and now you've got to find like a subletter and you've, it, and you, there's a chance that you don't turn a profit. You only turn a profit for six months when people are actually traveling to whatever your city is. Right. Yeah. But when you own a property and you're, and you're purchasing it, you should always purchase your property on the premise that you're not doing short-term rental. Like the short-term rental should be like a heavy amount of icing on the cake. Yeah, got it. Right? Like a strategy, but you have B and C there as yeah. well. Yeah. Like Airbnb is like, uh, a plus strategy. Your Got A, it. your A strategy should be: I buy this property and it meets all of my mandatory requirements from like mm-hmm. just a strictly rental yeah. perspective. If I can do the short term rental thing, then it's like you got a slam dunk of a deal. Got it. And how are they taxed on? How does Airbnb tax? Like yeah. they don't issue a T four, do they? Uh, so they do uh, issue you a report mm-hmm. which shows all the income that came in, separates out the cleaning fees, etc. That's just available to you right now. Airbnb is fairly new. So right now they, I think they're in the process. The CRA is realizing how much money is being made on Airbnb. And I'm, and I'm a hundred percent sure they're working something out where Airbnb will eventually start reporting things to them. Another big thing on that note is right now, Airbnb, similar to when Uber first came out is they're, people aren't really charging HST on that income. Cause once you pass hmm. that 30 K threshold, you're now subject Sorry. to HST. Again, you're running a business. Hmm. So, Airbnb has now included the option based on recent updates to charge HST on the income. So then when the, when the person's checking out and per, uh, booking your property, 
they'll have to pay the 13% HST. A lot of hosts haven't, you know, adopted it yet. And the CRA on there on the back end there with Airbnb needs to, you know, figure out that relationship in terms of how it's going to be reported and things like that. And what about when you dispose of the property? Yeah. Pyrosanth. Oh man. So this is Do you have to pay HST on the sale of your property? Yeah. So if you go the traditional strategic route, and this was one of the things I had in mind, I'm as a mind reader. Um, so you know, if you were to just go plain and simple, rent this thing on Airbnb, file your taxes, uh, you pass the 30K a threshold and you're, you know, now subject to HST, your property is now essentially being used as a commercial space. So when you sell that property, you now have to pay 13% HST on the sale, on the sale of the property, plus the capital gain. Interesting. Wow. Right? So that, that's is a, that on all investment properties or no? Just if you're renting no, it as no, a business. Because yeah. typically when you rent an investment property, it's going towards a tenant and you're now providing housing in the GTA. So it's not necessarily a business. So typical rental properties are not subject to HST. But when you do Airbnb, you're now a commercial rental property versus a residential rental property. Ooh. Wow, mind blowing. Bam. Just save some people some money. Yeah, yeah legit. So and always always consult your accountant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Always so consult your accountant. There is Side effects and might be. We do have a few strategies to uh, you know mitigate this. Um, feel free to reach out to me if you want those details. <clears throat> yeah, because um, I'm being honest with Mark here. We have places to be, people to yep, see. Let's so wrap it I can I can honestly talk to you guys forever about this. Yeah. Um, uh, what are some areas right now as an investor mm -hmm. in Ontario that you would look to invest in? Yeah. If you want to give me one or two. Yeah. I really like Scarborough in terms of, I think it's an area where if you do do duplex conversions and you do have the cash to, to tie up, it will cash flow. The negative is your ROI is lower than some of these strong yeah. cash flowing properties by far. Uh, that's just for me personally, but I know Emma is a big advocate of the condos and myself as well. Yeah. If you can get them to cash flow or use a re-rental strategy. strategy. Um, I'm fond of condos anywhere, sort of in the core of anywhere. So like I'm comfortable with downtown. I'm comfortable with sort of city center in Mississauga. The, the condos that scare me are the ones that are in the middle of nowhere by themselves and you're just yeah. buying that and yeah. hoping that they're going to go up. Like there needs to be some sort of infrastructure there. Right. But I think um, looking on sort of the way up, it's like Windsor's great if you want cash flow. London's pretty decent if you yeah. want cash flow in some areas. Kitchener Waterloo is good. It's cash flow positive, but you're not going to like, you're not going to be retiring off it, but like yeah. you can buy some decent properties there. Toronto, you're probably, if you find something that's break even, it's a good deal. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Okay. And then as you kind of continue to go away from the GTA, it becomes a little more. One book that would, that changed your life that you'd recommend. Uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Oh, wow. Unreal. One. I'd recommend the audio book. So good. Yeah. Did, you hear that? Did you listen yeah, to yeah, it? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah really good. Uh, for me, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was kind of like the main one that started me off in real estate investing. Mm -hmm. I think if you talk to a lot of real estate yeah, investors, that's they'll a say that's one of the foundations. You have to listen to it. If you want to pre-qualify to be our client. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding. Ask a quick question before we mm -hmm. wrap up here. Uh, where can people find you? So you can find me on Instagram at PVTheCPA or at my email address, Pearsanth at midcpa.com. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram too. That's where I'm most active. It's uh, Pace of Base. Uh, so P-A-C-E-O-F-B-A-S-S. -S, or uh, you can find me at my email as well, which is emma.pace at zucasa.com. Sweet. Last question. Um, I asked this to everybody, uh, we're kind of, in order to make it in this world, you have to, I've mentioned this before, you have to master a craft, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and as you go along mastering a craft, you start learning things and seeing the world from a perspective that other people don't see it. Mm -hmm. Um, so if there was one thing from your perspective or profession or your life experience that, you know, that many other people don't know that you wish they would, mm -hmm. what would that be? I think one thing that has really stood out to me these past few years is, you know, especially someone who works with money and you know typically have been uh, frugal growing up etc if there's something you can do and pay money to have somebody else do and you can use that time to go and make more money it's always worth it i you know i run into this problem with my clients uh, personal friends etc you know they're always focused on the cash outflow of spending that money versus hey i could just do that myself and spend three hours instead of paying this guy you know 600 bucks Whereas if you can pay them the 600 bucks and use that three hours to make more cash, turn out some more business, always do that instead. Love that four hour work weeks, amazing book for that. Yeah. Or uh, one thing by something Keller. Yeah, Gary um, Keller. Gary Keller, thank yeah. you. From Keller Williams, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Okay, and uh, how about you, Emma? What would you say? Mine is uh, 
just a saying that is in our industry and that's <clears throat> a great real estate agent is super cheap and a terrible real estate agent is super expensive and i 100 percent live by that what do you mean by that can you elaborate a bit yeah so uh you know a great agent that knows how to structure things can typically negotiate you a better deal or or you know both sides on the buy side or the sell side right so they can put your property in a position to make sure that you're hitting the top of market and a bad real estate agent, you know, whether that ends up being a part-time person that has done no business, might do the comp thing that we talked about before and just say, here's the highest comps. You should just pay higher than this. And that might end up costing you a lot of money. So a good real estate agent should at least be able to assume their commissions in what they're helping you to do, in my opinion. Amazing. Couldn't agree more. That's the end of the episode. I could I'd honestly talk with you guys for another hour. No, this hour. is awesome. I would love to have you back again sometime in the future. Totally. For sure. Um, but... Until next time, this is uh, What They Did Not Teach You in School. Thank you all for coming out. Appreciate you both being here. Thank you. We'll see you then. Ciao. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. Woo! Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at The Wise Investor. Until next time. This is What They Did Not Teach You in School. We hope to see you soon.